We've been working through the book of John these last few weeks. So if you open your Bible to the book of John, chapter 13, we find ourselves in this really interesting moment. We just had an election this week. Half of us have this really clear picture that God answered our prayers. Half of us have this other picture like our prayers didn't work. What do we do with that? How do we put that together? How do we bridge that reality that we're living in right now? That either God does answer prayers in this specific way, or what happened? I don't get it. We prayed, we believed, nothing. The thing that, the thing that I was expecting did not happen. We find ourselves in the book of John, chapter 13, in this interesting moment where Jesus is preparing the disciples for an unexpected moment. Jesus is looking at the ones that he spent the last three years with. And as he spends the last moment he's going to have on the eve before his crucifixion, Jesus does this work to prepare his disciples for suffering. Really interesting how Jesus does this. Jesus sits down with them, and the first thing he does, he welcomes them to a common meal. He brings them and he sits them around a table. These people that he spent his life with for an extended amount of time, knowing ahead of time that this really difficult season is most certainly coming. And as he does so, he essentially has Thanksgiving with them. When we look at the idea of Passover, we don't celebrate Passover very often as an American kind of culture. But we, there is, this is a prescripted, specific meal that you have with your family every single year. Essentially, Jesus has a Thanksgiving dinner with his family. And then he does this unexpected thing. It's expected that you would have this specific meal. But it's unexpected that the Lord of the house then would take a minute before the meal to do their laundry. I was, I was trying to picture this in my mind. What would it be like for someone to wash my feet right before a meal? Like how weird would it be if I invite my dad over for Thanksgiving dinner and he just goes straight to the bedroom and takes out all my undergarments and just starts scrubbing them? Like that would be a very unexpected thing. We start asking Jesus, what, what's the plan here? What are you describing here? These are the things that Jesus does to prepare his disciples for what's coming. Somehow Jesus is redescribing what it means to be God with these specific activities. And as we read, of course, in the midst of this, one of the disciples isn't remembering right the kind of person Jesus is. Judas doesn't get the picture. Judas has a completely different picture of who Jesus is because he had a really specific preconceived notion about what he thought God would be doing. So Jesus, Jesus recognizes him, and now we find ourselves in verse 31. A new commandment I give you, love one another. I'm sorry, this is 31, here we are. So when he, Judas, was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told, you Jew, told the Jews, so I tell you now where I'm going you cannot come. Now, I'm, I'm guessing here that Jesus takes a pause. Jesus takes a moment just to be quiet for a second, to let all of that sink in, because this is a hard thing to hear. 
especially as his disciples, recognizing the, the picture that they had of a Messiah that was going to come and take over the world, going to undo the Roman uh, d- dominating presence in, in their lives that was oppressive and difficult and painful. And now Jesus is, is this picture that's going to come, and Jesus says, no, I'm going away now before what you expected happen, to happen happens. This is a big pill to swallow. He continues. Let that sink in. I'm not going to be here anymore. And now a new commandment I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. God help us. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now. But you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you right now? I will, lay down, I will lay down my life for you. And then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And here we have this huge, ominous chapter break. The end of chapter 13. Of course, those weren't there when they first wrote the thing. But now we can see this is obviously another spot for a big, long pause. <gasps> What? And Peter's the most confident. Peter's the most certain, the most clear about everything that he believes. Peter is on target with the specificity of who God is. Number one, Jesus says he's going. And number two, our leadership structure, the one who's got all the answers, the one who we put all our eggs in that guy's basket, now this is all before us unraveling. Everything we anticipated about who God is is changing. Another long pause. Then comes the next words from Jesus. Chapter 14, verse 1. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believed in God, believe also in me. As everything unravels, as everything changes, everything you anticipated becomes not what you anticipated. Your expectations are not met. You are full of disappointment and confusion and disillusionment completely. And Jesus says, don't let these things trouble your hearts. How can these not trouble us? How can we not feel terribly uncomfortable in a moment like this? Jesus says, don't be troubled. Your assumptions about God, your assumptions about your leadership, your assumptions about the status quo are completely flipped upside down. Don't be troubled by this. And then he says, you believed in God, now believe in me. More confusion. Wait a minute. I thought you were God. I thought that you were the Messiah. Peter just said a couple of days ago, right? He, he proclaims you as Lord and God, and you receive that. And now, again, a fissure between what we anticipate and what Jesus is, is anticipating for us. How are we not supposed to be troubled by these things? We've been working through this series on suffering this last four, this is the fifth week, as we talk about what it means when the things we expect don't come to pass. Specifically, the things about what we expect God to be. We know that God is good. We know that God loves. We know that God is all-powerful, but still terrible things happen all the time. 
How can this be? Really normal responses. We have these coping kind of responses to, to suffering in the, in the radical sense that this is happening because it, it must be God's will. Or maybe this is happening because God's teaching us a lesson for something that we've done in our past. Maybe this is happening because God has something much, much better in store for us. And we do this in response to this interesting and, and difficult and painful pill that we have to swallow because suffering continues. Then something else happens here. As we come to this Sunday, the last Sunday in this section on theodicy, there's a fourth option, a fourth reason that we might, we might give because these assumptions that we have about who God is, assumptions that we have that God's going to keep us safe, God's going to keep our kids safe. God's going to keep us from harm. God's going to provide for us. We're never going to go without. And then sometimes we go without. Sometimes our kids die. Sometimes we become assaulted. And if we're lucky, at the end we can still say, God is good. If we're lucky, at the end of our lives we can say, we didn't get touched by those terrible things. But some of us aren't so fortunate. Some of us have this fourth response. The first three are pretty common in our Christian community. The fourth one, someone's listening to me right now. (laughs) The fourth one isn't so common in our Christian community. The fourth theodicy that that humans come to at, at some point sometimes is maybe God isn't real. Maybe that's the, the reality that we come to because I can't handle the idea that this is God's will for me. I can't handle the idea that, that this is a lesson. This is some kind of a good teacher. I can't handle the idea that God has something better. Maybe God's not real. Maybe the God I've believed in, maybe the religion that I've adhered to, maybe this is all a big farce. And we hear that. I'm sure some of you have heard that before. I'm sure many of you have friends and family, loved ones, neighbors, relatives that have said this very same sentence to you. I don't believe in God anymore. And immediately, we fill that space as quickly as possible. We fill up that empty idea with anything we can think of that we can throw at that. No, 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 don't say that. No, 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 that's not true. You're, you're, maybe it is God's will. We start pulling back in all these things that we've been trying to undo because anything's better than that picture. Yes, yes, maybe it is God's will. I'm sure God does have something better for you. It's going to be okay in the end. Maybe this is a lesson. Is there some kind of sin that you've been doing? We fill it all up with anything besides that statement because that one is too terrifying for us to let sit quietly. And then all of a sudden, if none of that works, we all become archaeologists somehow, right? We all start finding bones on the internet somehow that describe how God is real or the Dead Sea Scrolls, and this all proves, I'm not an archaeologist. I I haven't met anyone here yet that is an archaeologist. Whatever we can do to fill the void, instead of allowing people to ask this question, is God real? I have family members that have lost appendages from cancer. I have friends and family that that have been assaulted, 
traumatized, experience PTSD now. I have friends and family that are deeply, deeply depressed clinically and don't know how to get out of that. I have friends and family that have lost loved ones, lost family members to, to death or lost family members to hate, lost family members to, to fear, lost family members to a lack of faith. I'm sure you do too. And I know the, the weight that we feel when we hear someone use that phrase, God's not real. When the disciples come to this moment, when Peter denies Jesus, when Jesus is taken, beaten, and killed, buried, can you imagine they must have come to a place of complete disillusionment with their faith, complete disillusionment with their religion. Jesus has these things that he's done beforehand, these ways that he's tried to rearticulate who God is. The last memory they have, the night before all this happens, Jesus' response here is, don't let these things trouble your heart. You believed in God. Now believe in me. We tell each other stories about what God's going to do. We have a God that we've created, and he's very controllable because we can understand exactly what's going to happen before it happens based on what we understand who God is supposed to be. Jesus is saying, you've had that. You've believed in that. You've constructed that in your mind and in your culture and your society. That's going to end in disillusionment. Now, believe in me. What would that look like? We had an anticipation of God that he was going to vanquish our enemies. Instead, Jesus was crucified. We had a picture of God that he would provide all of our needs, our food at the table. Instead, Jesus washes our feet. You've had this picture about all the things that you anticipated God was going to do for you. Now believe in me. We come to this place now in the scriptures, and we read this a million times, and every Christian quotes this to every non-Christian. <clears throat> if I can find it, and it's here, I know it is. Very next verse. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me so that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Now Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? This is the one we quote over and over and over and over and over again to every non-believer. Jesus answered, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you really knew me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him because you've seen me. We've quoted this to all of our non-Christian friends, every Buddhist and Muslim that we've ever encountered in our lives, which are often very few. We say the same thing, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Christ. This moment we have, this opportunity we have to preach this to ourselves, fellow believers, 
To say this specific word to ourselves, we have constructed a God that is very easily manageable. But at this point, Jesus says, wait, 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 wait. No one comes to the Father except through this picture that I'm giving you. No one can understand who God is unless they've understood the things that I'm doing before you here. I welcome you to the table. You are welcome here. This is a place where you have a spot. And then I challenge you, recognizing that you will most certainly suffer. I provide for you a meal, but at the same time, me, God, wash your feet. Hi, guys. Welcome. Everybody, everybody wants to know who God is. But if we take a moment... We take a moment to look and to see. Jesus gives us a picture of God that then we can get a glimpse of the Father. No one comes to the Father but through me. And if you really knew me, then, then you would know the Father. I have some friends that do not believe in God. And I can fill that space really quickly with lots of reasons why they ought to believe in God. Or I can enter into their story like Jesus entered into ours. I can, I can quiet myself and listen first and say, tell me about the God that you don't believe in. Tell me about the one that you can't come to terms with. Oh, the God that says it's his best, God's best will for your family member to die. Couldn't do any better than that. I don't know that I believe in that God either. Tell me about the God that you do not believe in. The God that teaches lessons by bringing assault to individuals, women and men. Ah, I don't know that I believe in that God either. The God that uses deep, deep depression, debilitating depression, so that you can have something better. I don't know that I believe in that God either. I do believe in this one. This one that sat down in my suffering with me. This one that died on behalf of my malfeasance. This God the king of the universe, creator of all things, that takes a moment to come and wash my feet. I believe in that one. When we come to suffering, we come to a place of uncertainty. I've been reading a book this week, just started it. It's called The Sin of Certainty. The sin that we, that we commit when we place all of our preconceived ideas on who God is and who God ought to be and how God ought to behave, instead of taking a moment to listen when Jesus is bringing us this picture ahead of time. This is what you can know of me before you enter into suffering. You believed in God. Now believe in me. We're going to worship together in just a minute. But as we do, I I, want to have a clear picture here that that Jesus gives us in the the rest of this passage. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. If you want to know the Father and you really know me, you will know the Father. Now Philip says, Lord, show us the Father that we may, then that will be enough for us. 
Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing this work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. For very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name, so the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask for anything in my name, and I will do it. This is super complicated, isn't it? I've heard this a lot too. Anything you ask in my name, and I will do it. My my kids have read this story, heard this verse. Anything we ask in Jesus' name, and it will be done for us. Well, then why isn't it happening? There's a really specific picture here where Jesus is saying, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only say what I hear the Father saying. And as I'm saying and doing those things, you're getting better and better glimpses into who the Father is, what the Father does, and what the Father says. And now he invites us into that same picture. As you do what I am doing, as you say what I am saying, as you become as I am, now all of a sudden anything, anything is possible. Everything can be as we enter into what Jesus is already at work doing. We look at Jesus' last moment with his disciples He takes a moment, he sits down with his people, he welcomes them, and then he welcomes them to suffering. Welcome and challenge. He feeds them, and he washes their feet. He calls Peter out on his stuff. He recognizes and speaks to Judas' brokenness, and then he washes their feet anyway. As Jesus does this thing, we get a picture about what we might be able to do also. We're going to enter into a place of worship now. And we can see that Jesus is not the kind of God that maybe we pictured ahead of time. And the the circumstances of our world maybe are not the things that we anticipated. That doesn't change that we can enter into the things that Jesus is doing. Jesus entered into what the Father was doing, and he gave us a picture of who the Father is. We get to enter into what Jesus is doing, and we get to give the rest of the world a picture about who Jesus is. As we worship together, I wonder as as we sing these songs unto God, as we speak to God about how wonderful he is, I wonder if we could include the rest of our neighbors, our, our friends, our families with us as a prayer. Say, God, let this be evident. As I worship, God, let these truths about you be evident to those around me. As I worship you, let let the things that I'm saying about how great you are become a description about who you are so that others could start to draw themselves to you also. Scriptures say that we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the words of our testimony. Scriptures say as we lift up the name of God, as as Jesus is lifted up, he'll draw all people to himself. This is the work of worship. This is why we've gathered together today, gathered in the house of the Lord as we describe it, in order to worship 
God, to, to lift him up, to be examples of what it means to recognize that God is more than I am. I don't have the answers. Giving others a glimpse of who he is. So let's worship. Would you stand with me as we worship? God, be glorified. In our lives, Lord, be glorified. In our work, be glorified. In our worship today, as we communally come together as a group of people at home or in this room to worship you and to describe how great you are, God, would you be glorified in that? God, would you receive that? We don't ask things of you. We don't need you to, to minister us to, to us right now, God. Minister to us later. We're going to need that. We definitely need you. But for now, God, would you just receive worship? Would you receive from us what we see about who you are? Give us a glimpse, God. Lead us in worship.